We spent uh, a good bit of time over the last number of months dealing with various aspects of loving God or of the love of God and loving one another. There's still a few copies, I think, back at the back or on the front table of all the one another's. And, um, well, after all, God is love. And the greatest commandment is that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and that we love one another. And so the greatest sin or sins would be against love. Now, there's an aspect that we have not dealt with that I hope to deal with this morning and next Lord's Day morning as we come to the Lord's table. And we'll deal more with the passage that was read this morning next week. This morning we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 and work our way through that. There are two key passages in Corinthians that speak to us on the subject of chastening, uh, God's correcting of his children. And interestingly, the Lord's Supper comes up in the context of that. So that should be very significant to us, shouldn't it? So let's pray and let's trust the Spirit of God to uh, guide our hearts as we study God's Word together. Father, we bless you and we praise you for great is your faithfulness And truly may you and your word uh, be our vision. Open our minds and hearts to receive the word of God today and to act upon it. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Titling it this morning, Love Expressed by Discipline. And I actually want to begin with a historical account of something that I've shared with you before, but I just, I just love this. So here you go again. And it does fit in with what we're wanting to do. This is something that happened 40 miles from where I was raised, but a few years before I was born, 1837. A few years before any of us were born. But there was a revival meeting taking place in the town or thereabouts of Edenton, Georgia. About 40 miles from where I was raised. A number of people had been converted. And they were now gathered at a river uh, for a baptism. And one of the people being baptized was a teenage girl named Carrie. And Carrie had come to Christ with a great deal of conviction of sin. Uh, She'd lived a life of sin. And so she testified, I desire to be even more divided, more devoted to my Savior than I have ever been to the world. So there at the riverside was also her best friend, Julia, who was not yet converted, and they had been involved in all kinds of sin together. And so here's this unsaved girl, Julia, watching her closest friend being baptized. And there's a historical record of this in a book that I have. And it states, it's, it states that 
The banks of that little stream were lined with crowds, interested spectators, and Julia clung to Carrie till she reached the water's edge. A hymn was sung. Brother C.D. Mallory made a few remarks and offered prayer. Then Brother John Dawson took Carrie by the hand and led her down into the river. When they had almost gotten to the depth they desired, Carrie requested that they stop, and she wanted to say something. She turned to those that were watching from the banks, and this is what she said as she waved her hands. Farewell, young friends. Farewell, Julia. The history records that people were weeping just almost immediately at this expression. They knew how close Julia was to her. They knew her agony, and they realized that this was goodbye. Uh, And so coming up out of the water... Julia rushed toward Carrie and embraced her, crying out, Oh, Carrie, you must not leave me. Mr. Dawson, pray for me. Mr. Mallory, pray for me. Obviously, this was more than just a little routine where somebody is led through a prayer and pronounced saved, whether they're saved or not, and we baptize them and make our statistics look good. This was somebody who had been convicted of sin, had repented of sin, and in her heart had broke all ties. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Julia. This story, this account, this historical moment illustrates a forgotten truth in our day. There is a vast difference. There is a great divide between the world and Jesus Christ. There's a great divide between a genuine Christian and a lost person. Goodbye world. Carrie would now have new friends. She'd have new joys. She'd have a new family. She would leave the fellowship of her old friends. There was a great dividing line. Didn't mean that she was going to be unkind toward her ex-friend, but she was no longer her friend. Oh, she'd be willing to minister to her. But their relationship was radically changed. They could not continue on as they had in the past. They were in different worlds. Well, there is a difference between the world and the church. But the church at Corinth... Apparently forgotten that. If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians lately, you know that almost every chapter, the Apostle Paul is having to deal with sin issues in the church at Corinth. In fact, if you'll think about it, most every epistle is dealing with the reality that God's saved people, even those who are saved, have a sad tendency of wanting to wander off into the things of the world and to minimize, if possible, the difference. We don't like to be too different from the world. The church at Corinth was in deep trouble because they were blending to the world. 
So let's first of all read through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole short chapter, and I'll add a few uh, additions to it that comes from other translations. I'll be reading it from the KJV. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. He's writing to the church. And one of the reasons I like the KJV, I'm not KJV only, I use other translations, but there are times when the KJV uses a word that we don't like. It doesn't sound too good. Well, it's what it is, and we need it in full blast of just what it is. It's commonly reported that there is fornication among you, and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. The Phyllis paraphrase says, Shouldn't you be overwhelmed with sorrow and shame? The man who has done such a thing should be certainly expelled from your fellowship. Verse 3, for I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. Now, at this point, they're focusing on one individual. But the exhortation is to the whole church. It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you. He doesn't just have a problem. You have a problem, church. Paul says to the Corinthian church. So in the, verse 4, so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... And my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't suppose I'll ever forget the first time we ever carried out this action on behalf of one that we loved very much. And when we presented the situation on a Sunday night, the congregation didn't know about it because we had been dealing with it privately, praying, interceding, taking him to Bible school, Bible uh, teachers and fasting and, and so forth. So there were people who were shocked when this announcement came on that Sunday night. So we talked about it. All minds were clear. We understood what we had to do. But we couldn't take the action. There was no controversy. We just couldn't take the action. It was such an emotional time. We need another week. When we came back the next week, we had a congregation of people who were broken over sin. We had a fresh awareness that we were being non-caring and non-loving as a congregation. And we were not dealing with our own sin. 
But it all came down to the fact, and I had gone to this dear man and said, this is what we're doing. He knew the Bible. He said, I know that you're doing what you're doing because it's what God says to do. But so we got down on our faces before God. Most of us just gathered on our knees before God at the front pew. And I'll never remember, I'll never forget one of the things I said. I said, Lord, we've got our fingers here on 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. And Lord, I don't know what all that means. But that's what we're doing. Well, to shorten the story, by the grace and mercy of God, there would come a day when this man was free. It was a two steps forward, three steps backward, and back and forth, and ultimately a lifestyle of freedom. But when he first came back, he came before our congregation, and the first words out of his mouth was, I want to thank you for loving me. We're talking about love. Now, people on the outside and some of the people on the fringe of the church went to the business offices the next day and places of work and talked about how unloving we were and how narrow-minded we were. Well, that doesn't matter. It matters what God says. This is an awesome passage. God was confronting the Corinthian Christians with, with awesome reality here. And the ultimate goal is that this man's spirit might be saved in the, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Now you may not be a cook, but there's plenty of ladies here and some men who can tell you exactly what you need to know about understanding what leaven does. Purge out therefore... The old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, and he widens the scope here, neither. With the leaven of malice and wickedness. Here's a man that they're focusing on who's very ungodly in what he does. But as God speaks to Paul, church, as we go through this cleansing process, we need to be cleansed from all wickedness and from malice. I wrote to you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. The world out there, wicked. We're not told we have to quit our jobs. We're not told, with, with all due respect, I'm not going to go on a bandwagon here and not going to judge you and don't come and talk to me about this. But if something happens and you say, well, I'm not going to buy from that store anymore. Well, you better get ready. You won't be buying from any store. 
You won't be able to have any job. Well, I quit a job because my company now does. The world is the world and the world is getting darker. And he has not ordained that we have to necessarily leave a job and not shop here or there or whatever. That's not the focus. He says, then we'd have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man who is called a brother or a sister is a fornicator or covetous. Oops. Now, hmm. Well, by the grace of God, I'm sitting here feeling pretty good because I'm not a fornicator. Covetousness is a nice sin. Doesn't make the headlines. It's on a deadly list here, isn't it? Or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. I've had people say to me, listen, I believe in Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ. I've prayed the prayer. I've asked him to save me. Uh, he died on the cross for my sins. But then I've had the same person say, but I realize that the Bible says there won't be any drunkards in heaven. So is there a problem with my profession? Serious question. He says here to these believers, this church, don't keep company with these people who are caught up in these various lifestyles. With such a one, do not eat. There were people working for this fellow that we carried out the discipline on many years ago. In fact, there may be a brother who went on a job down to Atlanta area. And when it came lunchtime, they couldn't eat with him. They could work for him. Couldn't eat with him. Because we were trying in an expression of love to love this dear person who was in bondage. Verse 12, for what have we to do to judge them that are without? Oh, now that's a favorite pastime, isn't it? Christian America loves to judge the people on the outside. But them that are without, God judges. Here's an assignment for you and I. Stop trying to do God's business. He doesn't need your help or my help, and he doesn't want it. So instead of uh, judging and, and speaking all kinds of evil and making jokes about those who are bad politicians, whatever, won't we just obey the Lord and pray for them? We're told to do that. Maybe you could be at a place of work and someone starts railing against, for example, the president. And so he says, stop just a minute. I want to pray. And so you start praying for the president. I wonder how that would go over. Even at a Bible study. Or in a Sunday school class. Oh, I want to pray for a minute. And so we just obey the scripture. We love to do something that's not, we're not called to do. Wonder why that is. Well, it keeps the light from shining on us. 
God is ordained that the light shine on us. He's out to change us. So he says, them that are without, verse 13, God judges. Therefore, put away from among you yourselves that wicked person. Now, the good news is they apparently took care of all that. And we know in 2 Corinthians that he apparently repented and uh, Paul would later exhort them to receive him. Hallelujah. Well, you know what? Love disciplines. Love has discipline. This chapter has some foundational teaching about and guidelines about discipline chastening. And one of the things is, believe it or not, God, God's church has rules. Oh, I'm a grace man. I don't believe in rules. Hmm. Jesus said, if you love me, you don't have to worry about rules. Is that what he said in the Gospel of John? Oh, he didn't say that. If you love me, keep my suggestions. No, keep my commandments. It is actually reported that there is fornication among you and such fornication as not even named among the Gentiles that a man has sex with or fornicates with his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. This is the word of God. The true church of the living God has clear rules and they come from the book. Any kind of sex outside of marriage, there are rules. You do this, you don't do that. God loves rules. He made them. And he says, if you love me, keep them. And we all know that in Christ, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have power and desire to love the rules and to be walking on a path of walking in those rules. So there's to be no fornication. There's not to be a lot of other things here. These are the rules of the church of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul was saddened because the church was not only allowing this, but they didn't care. Do you realize, you, you've, you, we've seen this of others, uh, that, that family does not love their children, they just let them do anything. They're going to walk out in the street and get killed. It is lovelessness not to lovingly obey God's rules and teaching concerning family, concerning marriage, concerning the church, you name it. The church at Corinth was not shocked. And now, this thing that this guy was doing might not have been their cup of tea, but they were certainly okay with tolerating it. It's not my business. 
And if it was happening here, and someone said, some, you know, what you're doing is not right, it's none of your business. Oh? If you're not in the body of Christ, if you're not a Christian, no, it's none of my business. And whatever I'm doing to sin is none of your business, unless I'm in the body of Christ and you're in the body of Christ, and we're wanting to love like Jesus loved. First Corinthians shouts, you cannot keep your sin. You cannot keep your love for the world. First John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh, I wonder what has happened that James is preaching on this. Who's, who's done something bad? But just in case there's somebody out there worrying about that, that has nothing to do with anything that we're saying. We're simply fleshing out a whole nother huge area of we, if we're going to understand what the New Testament teaches us about love and about loving God and about loving one another, this is huge. Every day of our lives. And as we've already seen, it does, it's not just those big, bad, ugly sins. It's those okay sins that nobody talks about. So, this passage reminds us that not only does God have rules and standards and commandments... But this passage teaches us that we are responsible to judge one another. Not responsible to judge out in the world. And on a personal, specific level, we're not responsible to judge a church across town. Or whoever's in that. But we're responsible to judge one another. He said, I don't want to be in any place where anybody's judging me. Well, then, you can't be a member of the church then. Verse 3 through 5. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but haven't you forgotten the Sermon on the Mount? Thou shalt not judge. Everybody in the world knows that. I believe more people know that phrase than know John 3.16. Oh, you suppose it has a context? Matthew chapter 7. It's a wonderful verse. Judge not that you be not judged. Who do you think you are judging me? Bible says, Jesus said, don't judge. Hmm. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. So even in the context of thou shalt not judge, we are given instruction on how to judge. 
judging ourselves first of all. Put Galatians 6.1 right beside that because it helps us with even more. If you see someone, to, a brother or sister, see someone overtaken on the fault, ye which are spiritual, go and tell your neighbor. <gasps> you won't believe what I saw so-and-so did. Uh, that's a modern translation. Here's the real translation. And I think all of us know it. If you see your brother or your sister overtaken in a fall, go to them in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself also, lest you stumble. In 1 Corinthians 5, we learn that it's absolutely necessary for the church to judge. Commentator William Hendrickson wrote this about this section. It's like Paul takes the gavel in his hand, so to speak, and chairs the meeting of the local church, even though he's absent. He says, even though I'm not with you, as though I were present with you, my spirit being present with you, just think of me as being there, and I'll tell you ahead of time what my decision is. This man should be expelled. Then he says, not only as if I were there with my apostolic authority, but with the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. In other words, he is absolutely sure that Jesus is standing at the same place. Deliver him to Satan. This chapter is not one of those chapters when you ask people, tell me your favorite chapter of the Bible. First Corinthians 5 seldom comes up. But it's a great chapter. Here's a man professing to be a Christian, therefore professing to be under the headship of Christ, but is living like a non-Christian. So he's to be put away, out of the church. Where Satan's authority is, and there's a reason. If you're going to live totally opposite of what Jesus calls for, you're already living in the kingdom of self, sin, and Satan. So go out there. It might be similar to what the scripture talks about people given over. And it may be that the conditions out there, this individual that was here many years ago, immediately went out and got deeper in sin than he'd ever been. But months later, he got to, so, he got to missing the fellowship. He, begot to, he began to experience deeper consequences from his lifestyle. And God began to bring him home. In verse 6 through 8, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that, the little, that, that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore purge out the, whole le the old leaven. For indeed Christ our Passover sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. In the Old Testament we know that 
getting ready for the Passover, the Jews would have days of cleaning out every speck of leaven before they went to the Lord's, before they got to the Passover. Leaven represents evil, and all of the leaven, therefore, has to be removed. It's a serious thing to come to the Lord's table. We need those reminders that there are things in our lives that need to be taken out. Now, we, we've observed the Lord's Supper once a month. I keep reading more and more of various churches and reading their testimonies who do it every Sunday because they realize I need this reminder. Well, if you do something often, it'll become old hat. It can become old hat if you do it once every 10 years or once every month. It all depends on your attitude about it. Christians at Corinth, Christians at Southside, Christ has been sacrificed. We are to be as unleavened bread, pure and set apart for him. This core essential Christianity. But Corinth, you've allowed this man who's done this evil and has caused leaven to come in. And it will spread. Leaven spreads. Remove him. The modern evangelical Bible-believing church in America is inundated with the idea that we are obligated to, to tolerate sin. Well, after all, I tolerate it in my life, so nothing much to tolerate it in your life. And so uh, we, we can't pass judgment because it would mean that we'd have to deal with ourselves and we're not ready for that. You remember what happened with Achan over in the Old Testament when, when uh, Achan, one of the men that was a soldier in the time of uh, Joshua after Moses. And so they'd had this great victory at uh, walking around the, the city. What was the city they walked around seven times? Jericho. Jericho. And then they come up to a little bitty Ai. Piece of cake. They go to Ai and they're, they're just s slaughtered. And Joshua's on his face before God. God, what on earth has happened? Why have you forsaken us? And the short of it is, God said, there's sin in the camp. And God did not immediately pinpoint Achan. God sent that whole people of Israel through a time of sanctification, of dealing with their own sin. And then it got to Achan. Church discipline is not a matter uh, pointing to one person and everybody else looking around saying, he got his. I knew it was coming. It's a time of being broken. Oh God, it could have been me. Oh God, I wish I had loved him more. Oh God, I wish I had gone to him before it got bad. You're not being magnanimous when you tolerate sin. This, this passage talks about casting people out. I think they ought to be here so we can help them. 
If a person is struggling with sin and falling flat on their face, but they're in the war zone and they're fighting and they're wanting deliverance, yes. But this guy is not wanting deliverance. He's happy in his sin. And all he's going to do in your midst is to spread leaven. And remember, it could be the leaven of covetousness or an angry spirit. Others get contaminated. So it's okay if we have a Sunday school teacher who's getting drunk on Saturday night and teaching on Sunday morning. I've known of that. That's all I'm going to say at this point. But I have personally known of that. Or a businessman is being greedy and steals from his employer or his employee. Or a person is slandering others. It's okay to permit all that. Really? In verse 9 through 11... When we carry out biblical church discipline, we are not only removing that person from spreading leaven, but we're taking something from them that is most precious, and that's fellowship. I mentioned earlier that... uh, This dear one began to miss the fellowship. And so when a church judges its members in some occasions, it doesn't start here, but it can get to the point of withdrawing fellowship. Now, many times that effort is greatly hindered because you know what will happen. Let's go down the street to another church. A man walks into my office. He'd been having a horrid affair with someone in his office. We carry out, he refuses to repent. We carry out church discipline. A few weeks later, he comes into my office. He said some amazing things. He said, I know what you all are doing is right. It's what the Bible says. But I want you to know that I've visited this church, and I've visited this church, and I'm attending this church, and they all say what I'm doing is fine. And everybody does it. And they say that you're very narrow, and you're hard, and you're harsh, and you're legalistic. He said, but I don't think they're telling me the truth. We would live long enough to one day, a few years later, for this, that man to stand before this, stand at this very place and thank our church for loving him. He said, I would be in a gutter today had not this church loved me enough to confront me with my sin. One person wrote, Yes, there's these problems and you start the process and people just leave and they are welcomed elsewhere. However, 
If you have ever known the beauty and the relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ and have tasted the sweetness of that kind of relationship, it would almost destroy you to think of being removed. This person wrote in a personal testimony, when I think of my own propensity to sin and the foolish things that I could do, and then I think that I could stupidly go into some kind of gross sin and lose fellowship with the people that I love the most in all this world, it is too much for me. Such a thought stops me in my tracks and it makes me to say, I don't want to be that kind of man. I want to be careful about the way I live. I don't want to miss the fellowship. You see a related problem here? We don't understand the value and the beauty and the power and the need of cultivating fellowship with a unique body of believers. Oh, you can have good fellowship with you go on a vacation, you meet some Christians. Oh, I had a great time because you were Christians. But in a local assembly, you get to see all the, 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 the knots and the, the scratches and the imperfections. And, but the unconditional love and the kindness and the ministry and the coming to aid one another becomes precious to you. And you don't want to be away from the fellowship. You don't want to do anything to hinder the fellowship. But sin can get so bad that you're not even to eat. Verse 2, to be taken away. Verse 5, delivered to Satan. Verse 7, purged out the old leaven. Verse 11, I've written you not to keep company. Not even with such a one to eat. Verse 13, put away, expel that person. You say, but doesn't for chapter 14 speak about the unbeliever wandering into the church and being convicted by the preached word? Yes. It's a whole different story. That's different from somebody not just wandering in, but I'm, I'm going to be cool here and I'm going to hide my sin or I'm going to be open to my sin, but no one's going to do anything about it and I'm not going to do anything about it. We're just going to tolerate sin. Just like the church at Corinth. Our fellowship in Christ with one another is the most precious gift that we have this side of heaven. We're members one of another. We're brothers and sisters. And I tell you, it is an awesome thing to go through the experience of having fellowship withdrawn. I, I get that from a personal testimony. I've not been there, but I've been on the other side of the fence. Where people I had laid down my life for and with and had all kinds of Christian fellowship and we had to break fellowship. And I've seen it restored. Nothing more precious than that. There are scars that remain, but sin cannot conquer grace. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, I go back to those days and boy, I don't remember the sin that was done. I remember that grace was greater than sin. I remember that that person, oh yes, they went through some deep waters, but grace abounded. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. 
This is love, folks. Church discipline is for the individual to restore them. And church discipline is for the purity of the church. For the honor of Jesus Christ. As we come to the end, a quote. Churches who come to their senses about their failure to be a church and their failure to protect the preciousness of the relationship they have together and who are therefore casually or even arrogantly tolerating sin should be on their faces, our faces, in repentance. O God, we as a church have disobeyed you. We have taken lightly your command to protect the fellowship. I've sloughed up. Well, I know that Galatians 6 1 says, You which are spiritual, go to them in the spirit. But I'm not spiritual. Why not? Get spiritual. Get usable in God's kingdom. Church is not about attending a meeting, church is about being called out of the world and having fellowship with the body of believers of which Christ is the head. There's nothing more glorious, nothing more serious, nothing more profound, nothing more important in your life than mine. You see, we don't just tolerate each other. We don't just live with each other. We are married to each other. As fellow members of the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is our Passover. And all those who join together with that confession. We are automatically members one of another. To carry out those one another's. To love, to bless, to pray for, to exhort, if necessary, to discipline. Because of love. Real love. If you're here today and I'm not a Christian, you say, well, I, I, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. It might mean that somebody will run my life. Not ruin your life, run your life. Somebody is running your life. And if it's not Jesus, your life is on the road to ruin. Flee to Christ. Come to Christ. Cry out to him for mercy. He's God of mercy and a God of grace. Oh, Father, we ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God upon each of our hearts. That you'd make the application that we need in each of our individual lives. We thank you for the genuine, powerful reality of your love. A love that does care. Lord, you showed that at Calvary. May we walk in your steps. May there be some who in their heart of hearts, even these moments, cry out for saving mercy. All who come to you, you will in no wise cast out. Help us as a body of believers to grow in the grace of loving like Jesus loves. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.